Good morning. It is such a joy to be able to uh, worship with you, as Pastor Matt said, just to hear our voices united together, um, and this morning to be able to, uh, to see you once again, if you were with us last week, to uh, celebrate our Disciple Now weekend. What a gift that was, but um, the lights were blinding for me, and I could see no one last week, so it's just uh, it's special for me to just be able to see your faces this morning and to uh, be able to worship with you and um, just to be together. Uh, we are going to return to our study of uh, Joshua. The book of Joshua will be in Joshua chapter 9, um, and if you are a guest with us, just know that it's our habit and practice here at City Church to work our way through books of the Bible, primarily sometimes chunks or sections of that, but primarily to work our way through books of the Bible. And we are uh, picking back up after a little bit of a couple-week break uh, from the study of Joshua, and we're going to be in chapter 9. And just to give you a little bit of a recap of what we have studied thus far, um, this book can be broken up into a few different chunks that we've worked through. And the first section is chapters 1 through 4, and really the foundational um, sort of teaching of the text and what we are seeing really play out all throughout the book is that God made a promise to his people. He made a promise to his people that he would give them a land that would be their possession, their own home, and they would have that home and they would take possession of it. And over a number of generations, there were many reasons why they failed to receive that from the Lord. But in the book of Joshua, we see God doing this, bringing this promise to bear. And one of the most famous sort of verses, or at least quotes from the book of Joshua, is that verse. Uh, you've put it on all of your son's walls in really pretty font. Be strong and courageous. But we can't forget that that call to being strong and courageous is rooted in the promise that God made to his people. Joshua isn't called to be strong and courageous under his own strength or might. This is where, as parents, by the way, and we talked about this when we studied this text, we get that a little bit backwards, that we tell our kids to do things without explaining to them why the promises of God compel them to that and lead them into that and the blessing that that is. But it's because of God's promises to his people what he had said and what he had done, that they could respond now in strength. It wasn't their own strength, but it was the strength of the Lord and rooted in that promise. And so in chapters 1 through 4, God's people are in some ways just making preparation for all that God is doing and is going to do as he leads them into the promised land. And then in chapter 5 through 8, there's a bit of a turn and the people begin to enter and they cross over. And I'm going to read for you uh, from chapter 5, just the very first verse of chapter 5, where it says, As soon as the kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to the west and all the kings of the Canaanites who were by the sea heard that the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan for the people of Israel until they had crossed over, their hearts melted and there was no longer any spirit in them because of the people of Israel. Their hearts melted. And so in the beginning of this second section of chapter 5 through 8, we see the people of God begin to step over. They're on the east side of the Jordan. They're crossing the river into the promised land. And they are facing in some what might be perceived as enemies, but the people have already heard the enemies, the Canaanites, all those people with last names that end in it, they have heard of the story of God. They've heard what God has done. And because they have heard of what God has done, their hearts have melted within them. And so 
What is sometimes referred to as the battle of Jericho was no battle at all. Jericho just fell because God said it would and because the people feared and had seen what the God of Israel had done. And so God gives them these initial victories as they take hold of the promises that he's made to them. And then where we begin this morning in chapter 9, we're going to see the battles in some ways begin to increase as there is actual battles to be had. And we won't get there until chapter 10 because there's a little bit of a change. But in the first verse of chapter 9, this is what God's word says. As soon as all the kings who were beyond the Jordan in the hill country and in the lowland, all along the coast of the great sea toward Lebanon, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites heard of this, their hearts melted, right? Just like in chapter 5. No. They gathered as one to fight against Israel. So in chapter 5, they've heard of all that God has done and the people's hearts melt. In chapter 9, they've heard all that God has done and all that he already has done. And they decide, no, we will set ourselves up for battle. We will go to war. And what we're going to see as we look at this text and the story continue to unfold is something that a truth that we all need to understand and know. And it's why we began our time this morning reading Genesis chapter 3. From the beginning, all the way back to the garden, the enemy has attempted to thwart God's plans for his people. Has attempted to get in the way of God, what God had in store. And he always uses deception and lies to make that happen. To try and take God's people off of the course and the plans that he has for them. Notice what it says there in 3, verse 1. Did God really say? That's the question that the enemy asks Adam and Eve. Did God really say that? Can we really take him at his word? Do you hear that question, that doubt, and the deception of the enemy lingering on thousands of years later today, even still, what is one of the primary questions that people ask? Does God's word really say that? Can we trust God's word when it says that? Surely God's word needs to be altered, changed, reinterpreted, manipulated in some way. Did God really say? The enemy trying to thwart the plans of God. But here is the good news. It's found in 3.15 where God promises to know despite all of the deception and despite all the things that the enemy might do to try and thwart his plans, he will have the victory. He will one day, as we sang of, crush the serpent's head once and for all. What started at the cross will be fulfilled and the enemy will not win. I'm gonna teach you a Greek word For those of you that are guests, that only happens like once a quarter, so don't get excited. Don't come back for more of this. I barely passed that class. But in 3.15, that is sometimes referred to, that announcement, what God says in Genesis 3, chapter 15, or chapter 3, verse 15. It's referred to as the proto-evangelium. Two Greek words shoved together, proto and evangelium. First, the first good news. All the way back in Genesis, we see God make a promise, an announcement of good news that he will have the victory. 
The gospel isn't something that we just get to when we get to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Those are the gospels, but the gospel is seen from the beginning. God will accomplish what he promises to accomplish. And that's an announcement of good news. The reason that that word evangelium is used is because it sort of refers and depicts the picture of the warriors coming back from battle into the city. And as they come back from battle into the city, they're announcing that the war is over. That no longer will we have to battle, but there is now peace in the land. This is the announcement that we get the word gospel from. We also, when you hear that word evangelium, you hear evangelism. And so what we do as we share Christ, what I am attempting to do to some of you who are far off from the Lord and are just here to sort of Peering in saying, I want to know a little bit more about this Jesus. Or my neighbor really wants me to know more about this Jesus and I'm just tired of him annoying me to death, so I came this morning. Praise God you're here. And you're here so that you might hear an announcement from God, not from some silly man like me, but from God that there is peace to be had with God and that peace is found in the person of Jesus Christ. That's what he is announcing all the way back in Genesis. The first good news. But there is much more good news to be had all throughout our scriptures. But we also have to be keenly aware of the deception of the enemy. And as these things, there is deception, we also remember that announcement. We remember the promises that God made. So let's look closer at chapter 9. Pick back up in verse 3. So these groups of people have said they're going to go to war with Israel. They want to fight. But there is one group that sort of finds themselves in the middle. They aren't going to just fall down and God isn't going to just immediately destroy them. They think, okay, we've got a way around fighting. We're not real fighting people. Everybody, you know, some of us in the room are like, hey man, I'm not a fighter. I'm a lover. Just, let's, let's just have a little peace. Let's, let's calm down. That's the Gibeonites that we're going to look at here in verse 3. But when the inhabitants of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and to I, so they heard, they heard the stories. They, on their part, acted with cunning. And went and made ready provisions and took worn out sacks for their donkeys and wineskins and worn out uh, and torn and mended with worn out patch sandals on their feet and worn out clothes. And all their provisions were dry and crumbly. And they went to Joshua in the camp at Gilgal and said to him and to the men of Israel, we have come from a distant country. So now make a covenant with us. But the men of Israel said to the Hivites, perhaps you live among us. Then how can you make a, we make a covenant with you? They said to Joshua, we are your servants. And Joshua said to them, where, who are you and where do you come from? Verse 9, they said to him, from a very distant country, your servants have come because of the name of the Lord your God. We have heard a report of him and all that he did in Egypt and all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan and to Sion, the king of Heshbon, and to Og, king of Bashan, who lived in Ashtaroth. So our elders and all the inhabitants of our country said to us, take provisions in your hand for the journey and go and meet them and say to them, we are your servants. Come now, make a covenant with us. Here is our bread. It was still warm when we took it from our houses as food for the journey on the day we set out to come to you. But now, behold, it's dry and crumbly. These wineskins, when we uh, filled them, and, or were new when we filled them, and behold, they have burst. And these garments and sandals of ours are worn out from the very long journey. So the men took some of their provisions, but did not ask counsel from the Lord. And the Joshua made peace with them and made a covenant with them to let them live and the leaders of the congregation swore to them. So here's what's happening. 
The Gibeonites, they are very familiar with this God of Israel. You heard it said that we had heard all the stories about God and we understand that he is the God of Israel and, and know who he is and know about him. His, sort of, his word has preceded him. And because we understand what he did to Jericho and I, we don't want to find ourselves in that situation. We don't want to be killed. We'd like to have peace. Guess what else they knew? They not only knew of God and knew sort of his fame and his power and all those sorts of things, they even knew his word. You see, what they take advantage of is something that God told the people of Israel back in Deuteronomy chapter 20. And I don't have time to read it here, but if you want to do some after study this afternoon, I know that's what you really look forward to on Sunday afternoons. Um, go to verse 15. And you'll read where God's instruction to the Israelites is, is if someone comes from a far off land, if they come from a distance and they come to you asking for peace, then you will make a covenant with them and you'll allow them to serve in your land and to serve your household and you will care for them and they will be peace in your home or in your land. And so the Gibeonites... They knew about God. They even went so far as to know his word. And so they decide, hey, we're going to take advantage of this. We'll go to Israel and we'll go to all of these great links to deceive them and convince them that we have come from far off. We'll change our clothing. We'll make it look all worn out. We'll take some patches, our, our sandals. We'll take the wineskins. We'll, we'll let our bread dry out. All of these things going to great lengths to convince the people of God, the Israelites, that they were from far off so that they might have peace. Here's the amazing thing about this. I want you to contrast the actions of the Gibeonites and all that they went, the links that they went to, in a sense, to have peace, not with the Israelites. They thought they were going to have peace with the Israelites, but to have peace with God. They thought this is what they would get. Because if you think of all that has happened before, was it the Israelites that killed all of the people in Jericho or I? No, it was God himself. And so all of the links that they go to, to perceive or what they believe to have peace and to not be killed, is ultimately to have peace with God. But I want you to contrast those links to what Rahab did in chapter 2. The story of Rahab is not too different than the story of these Gibeonites. Rahab was a member of a community of a city that had rejected God, people who had gone against God's word, who had rejected who he was and not worshipped him. And yet, in faith, Rahab responded and said, I put my faith in the God of Israel because I have seen what he does. I have seen how he saves his people. I have seen how he protects his people. I put my faith in that God, not the God that my fathers have worshipped. And because of her faith, not only is she saved in all of her household, but she ultimately ends up being listed, as we know, in the lineage of the Messiah. She is used by God in a powerful way, simply by responding to what she knew about God in faith. Here we have the Gibeonites. They go to all of these links in their own minds to have peace with Israel, ultimately to try and obtain in some way to purchase for themselves some sort of peace with God. You may have heard of a phrase 
in our modern vernacular, often sometimes referred to in church life, called cultural Christianity. This idea that we can sort of have all of the trappings of being Christians, of walking with God, making our lives to look as if we follow the Lord. You know, posting all of the cool stories on your Instagram, putting some verses around, doing all of these things to make ourselves, to make yourself look like you were a Christian. Because you know of God, you've heard enough about him living where we live, it's pretty predominant here in our country and even maybe more so in our part of the world or the, of the nation. You've heard of him. You may have even and more than likely have been exposed a little bit to his word. Because of this knowledge, you've recognized that it is helpful, perhaps even brings you a little bit of peace to put on the trappings of Christianity, to try and sort of have peace with God or to appease God potentially. If I just do these things, look this way, act in this way, I'll be accepted by the culture. That's where we get the phrase. I'll look the part and I'll feel better about myself. And in all these ways, some of us are not too different than the Gibeonites. Trying to deceive ourselves, potentially to deceive others, so that we might feel like we have peace. With God. The Gibeonites wanted to have all of the protection of Israel, all of the protection of their God, but they didn't truly worship the Lord. They didn't know the God of Israel as the Lord God of their life. And so many of us, perhaps some of you in this room, Think to yourself, I enjoy all of the things of Christianity. I even appreciate the friends and the community that I find within God's church. But serving the Lord, worshiping God as Lord of your life, you have not done that. And here's what's amazing. If we look at the story of Rahab, all that is required by God is to repent and have faith and trust and believe that who he is, who he says he is, is who he is. And so we don't have to act a certain way. We don't have to look a certain way. We don't have to put on all these trappings of Christianity to sort of make ourselves. That's not what God asks or is ever after. All he asks, all he's pursuing right now is your heart to that you might know him. And so I don't want you to hear that. And, and perhaps while I pray that the Holy Spirit might be using God's word in some way of conviction, I want you to also know that you're here and you're hearing this word from God out of his mercy and his grace to you. He has brought you into the presence of his people. And he says, you've been playing a game, friend. 
You've been trying to sort of just try this thing on and make yourself feel better, thinking that if you just do the right things, look the right way, that you might have peace with me. Let me tell you, there's a much better and there's a much easier way. There's a much more powerful way. And that is to repent and to fall on your knees before Almighty God and say, I have nothing to offer you, but I receive that kindness, that mercy, that grace, the hope that you have to offer that only comes through Christ. And I will worship you no longer in this fraudulent way, but I will worship you as Lord. And may the Holy Spirit convince convince you of that and transform you. Because see, to have peace with God requires that we put our hope in someone that could obtain that peace for us. The one who was told about in Genesis chapter three, who would crush the enemy's head. That person, again, is Jesus. Now, there's another side of the coin of this deception that we see in this story, and that's found in Joshua's response. The Gibeonites, they do all they can to, again, try and have peace. And Joshua, it says in verse 14, responds and doesn't do exactly as God would call him to do. And because of this, he is deceived. So the men took some of their provisions, but did not ask counsel from the Lord. And Joshua made peace with them and made a covenant with them to let them live. And the leaders of the congregation swore to them. And so the rest of chapter 9 is this conversation between the congregation as they discover the deception of the Gibeonites. But Joshua has made a covenant with them. He has given them, granted them peace because of what he believed. And the reason that he was deceived in some way, is because he did not, as it says in verse 14, ask counsel from the Lord. See, Joshua, he was deceived by the Gibeonites because he only dealt with what he could see with his eyes. He was only concerned about how the world looked to him and what he could perceive from the Gibeonites from a physical standpoint. It looked, they looked the part. It looked like Exactly, they had come from far off and now they were here. This is what God's word is said to do. But we can be assured that God includes that phrase that because he did not seek counsel from the Lord to know that had he sought counsel from the Lord, he would have been made aware. God would have revealed him. No, 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 no. These people aren't who you think they are. And isn't it amazing? I just want you to unpack this just so our minds can sort of explode together a little bit. God allows, in his sovereignty, Joshua to be deceived by deceivers so that he might accomplish his greater purposes in the world through two forms of deception. I don't know. I don't know what to do with that, except to know that what God intends to do, God will do. And if God has brought you here so that you might hear from him and put your faith and hope in him, then he's going to do that. Don't try and say no, friend. Just submit and have peace with God once and for all. What I also know is that as believers, we cannot live our lives just by what we see. Sometimes the bright and shiny things, that beautiful bright sunlight comes and Cast through a window and lays a beautiful sort of shadow and brightness on a green field. And it looks glorious. 
It looks shiny. And then it blinds your own receiver so you cannot catch a football. (laughs) I'm just going to tell y'all, y'all are way slower than 9 (laughs) o'clock. And y'all had more coffee, I'm sure of it. The shiny things, the beautiful things, oh, it looks the right way, despite the fact that God's word says that football stadiums should run north and south. It doesn't say that, sorry. But it looks good. It looks beautiful. We want to look the right way and are so often deceived by this looks right. This is kind of what I'm after. We all know this. I'm not going to tell you anything new, and I'm not trying to bash anything. I'm on social media, but that's the reason it exists, to convince us of something that looks more beautiful than it really is. I'll just tell you right now, I have taken pictures in my home. It does not look like that. Some of our realtors in the room, you know what you can make a house look like. It ain't that. Our lives, we put these facades up, believing, and even as we respond to other people, we look first at what they look like, what they might be able to offer us, the exchanges. Is this a valuable relationship? Is this someone that I should spend time with? Is this something that I should care about? And all of the bright and shiny things convince us that this is the areas that we should spend our time in. This is the people we should invest in. These are all the things that we should do. How often do we ask God when we wake up in the morning, Lord, Give me your counsel. Guide my steps. As Pastor Matt often says, make my path straight. Lean not on my own understanding. Help me, Lord, to not lean on what I can see, but help me to lean on what I know of you and what you reveal to me. Do we live like that? Or are we deceived? I think in both cases, whether we find ourselves resembling in some ways the Gibeonites, or find ourselves sometimes acting as Joshua did. Both of us, both situations call us into a life of repentance. Someone said it better than I'll say it here, but Christianity begins and is forever a calling to a life of repentance. We don't shrink back and say, oh, if God knew this and try and deceive ourselves that there isn't really any sin in our lives, that there isn't anything wrong in our lives, that we can just cover it up with some worn out clothes or some crumbly bread or whatever the thing is. No, we run to a savior who says, who promised us, who we know to be true, who, whose word has preceded him. I paid it all. You can come to me And you can tell me everything because I already know it. And you can confess it and believe that what I did on the cross was enough. And in the same way, as we find ourselves looking at the world and following and sort of our steps being guided by only what we can see and not through the counsel of the word of God, through what God says to us, We repent and we confess, Lord, I have lived for too long in a seat that only you belong on. I want you to be Lord. This is why, friends, I don't know how many of you are reading along with me that tiny little 
Bible reading plan that we emailed out that you have to get a magnifying glass to see what we're reading today? I know, I'm sorry. Just a lot we were trying to put on one page for you. But that's why we spend time in the word every day. So we can hear the counsel of God. Hear the word of God. Some of you have asked before you woke up this morning asking, God, I want to hear from you. You have through his word. Go and read it. You want to know how we are to live, what you are to do in a situation. You have through his word. Believe it and allow him to be Lord. Our worship team is going to come up. And as you think of those two things, we're going to receive from the Lord's table. And as we prepare to receive from the Lord's table communion, I want to just invite every single one of us to humble ourselves before God in a few moments of prayer. The worship team is going to begin singing. And as they sing over us, before you join in and begin to sing with them, run to Jesus. Confess to Jesus. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, which I'll read for us in just a moment. Paul giving instructions on how we're to receive from the Lord's table. Says that we're not to come to God, not to come to his table in an unclean way. But no, we're to come cleansed of all unrighteousness. And all that means is, is that in order to receive from his table, we have to have repented of our sins and put our hope in his finished work. What we are doing this morning, if you have never participated in communion, we are remembering our Savior's sacrifice on the cross where he laid down his life for me and for you. We're remembering that. And as we remember that, first, his word tells us, come to me with your soul, with your heart, and give it all to me. So I wanna just invite you to do that, for us to spend a few moments in prayer. And then as the Holy Spirit leads, you can come forward and grab the elements, return to your seat, we'll receive communion together. If you need a gluten-free option, those are at the back corner. Um, if we run low, our team is sort of, we'll be watching, we'll reload this if we need. But just come and receive from the Lord, but let's first spend a few moments asking Jesus, cleanse us, remind us of what you have done. Lord Jesus, I pray that your spirit would move in this moment that we might remember your finished work on the cross. That we would no longer try and deceive ourselves or deceive you, but we would give our lives fully to you. We would trust that you have paid it all. We would trust in your word that says it is finished. The war is over. And that every soul in this room might have peace with almighty God. No longer at enmity. Now at peace because of what you have done, Jesus. Help us to remember that this morning. Help us to confess it to you. Help us to worship you as Lord, we pray in Jesus' mighty name. Thanks for listening to the preaching of God's word at City Church Melissa. 
We meet Sunday mornings at 9 and 1045 a.m. at 2300 Vineyard Hill Lane, and we hope to see you there soon. City Church Melissa, for the glory of God and the good of the city.